Welcome to Talking History, a series of talks given to the Farnham U3A World History Group. In this talk, Alan Freeland tells us about Ataturk, the greatest nation builder of modern time. Everything changed under Kemal Ataturk, and not just for Turkey, but for the world as a whole. Ataturk means father of the nation of Turkey, and we'll come to Turkish names later, because even these changed under Ataturk. As we go through the talk, I'll use the names that he was using at that time. So Mustafa, Mustafa Kemal, and Kemal Ataturk, and then Ataturk. His world legacy is that for the first time since European dominance of world affairs, a nation has stood up to Europe and had won. Because of this, he has become a role model for nations seeking independence, and the fact that Europe was Christian and Turkey was Muslim had additional resonance for Islamic countries. I've structured the talk into five sections. The first short part I've called historiography, mainly because I've never used that word before and I'm just trying it out, so (laughs) if it doesn't work, I apologise for that. The second part is, is also a short section, and it sets the scene in terms of the rise and decline of the Ottoman Empire and its relationship to Europe and the culture that prevailed at the time of Ataturk. In part three, we focus on how modern-day Turkey came into being, and in particular, Ataturk's life. Part three is the heaviest part. There's a lot of history to cover, and we will touch on the First World War. I know we've had one session on the First World War, we've got another one coming up in May, but this is where Ataturk made his reputation, so it's key that we do cover that. We'll look at the War of Independence, how the Republic was formed. In the final section, we'll look at Ataturk's uh, very brief marriage, and what that might tell us about Ataturk. So this this talk is much more about Ataturk as a person. Yes, it covers a lot of the historical events, but it isn't a complete history of the period. But first, a question for you. What do you call a leader who says what needs to be said, when it needs to be said, in order to achieve what they want to achieve, and then achieves their objectives? Unusual. Unusual, yes. (laughs) I didn't know that one. I like that one. Any other suggestions? Success. Success, yes. Unlikely, I'd say. Unlikely, yeah. I I think they're all all good words. I've written down a politician, successful, pragmatist, authoritarian, unprincipled, a liar. All of those apply as well. Because Ataturk tailored his messages for his audience and because he made conflicting statements at different times and because he didn't publish a a dogmatic thesis of his beliefs, it's always been very easy for politicians of opposing parties and ideologies to claim they are following in his footsteps. Thus, at different parties at different times have argued for democracy and against democracy, and they've quoted Ataturk in support of their arguments. For me, the overarching impression I get is a realist and a pragmatist. His goals were realised step by step, but swiftly, much faster than the population could actually absorb. And he believed the ends justified the means. He wasn't afraid to treat friend and foe alike, ruthlessly if needed. He was a very social animal, enjoying the company of individuals, crowds and parties, and he knew how to handle each person and each situation to get what he wanted. But everything about him is controversial, even his birth date. His birth is recorded in a register, but at that time Turkey had two calendars, a lunar calendar and a solar calendar. So nobody was absolutely clear when his birthday was. So Ataturk has chosen his own birthday and he's chosen it to coincide with the day he selected for Turkey's independence, 19th of May. So this tells us a lot about the sort of person we're dealing with. Anyone writing a 
uh, biography of Ataturk needs to be aware of three factors. First, the penal code in Turkey makes it a criminal offence to say anything negative about Turkey, its institutions or its national heroes like Kemal Ataturk. This makes it difficult to get an objective view of what Ataturk did and of him as a person. Being found guilty of the code can easily get you two years in prison. I'll just give you one example. A case was brought against one of Turkey's most famous writers with an international reputation, Orphan Pamuk. He mentioned in a Swiss magazine that 30,000 Kurds and a million Armenians had been killed, yet no one wants to talk about the subject. And that's all he said. But a case was brought against him. The case has been suspended, but it hasn't been dropped. Secondly, there's a lot of material in state archives which have not been released for academic scrutiny. One can only assume that it doesn't all show Ataturk as infallible and beneficent. And thirdly, as one would have to be to become a country's president, he was supremely self-confident and a very good self-publicist. So I've used four main sources for putting this talk together. So Norman Stone, Professor of European History at a Turkish university, previously been a professor at Oxford University. I, to be honest, I found his book far too erudite for me and too hard to follow. Ataturk, The Rebirth of a Nation by Patrick Kinross. This is probably recognised as the most definitive biography. He was an Oxford graduate, became a journalist and historian. But his book is published in 1964, so it's beginning to show his age. And Kinross was definitely a man of his time, and, and let's just say he wasn't a feminist. Sukru Heyoglu, if that's how you pronounce it, is a Turkish professor of late Ottoman history at Princeton University. He focused a lot on Ataturk's political philosophy, which is called Kemalism. Until Erdogan's Justice and Development Party came to power in 2002, every political organisation in Turkey had aligned themselves with Kemalism. Sukru also argues that many of the sayings attributed to Ataturk that have become national maxims were never in fact said by him. Turkish taxi drivers were not best pleased to learn that their motto, the Turkish driver is a man of the noblest feelings, was never actually said by Ataturk. (laughs) The fourth book is titled Madam Ataturk and focuses on Ataturk's wife, who has largely been written out of the history books. The author, Ipek Çalışlar, She was born in Istanbul and studied political science at Ankara University, and she became a correspondent for the Turkish radio and television company. She opposed the 1972 military coup and was imprisoned for two and a half years for her views. When this book was published in 2006, she faced criminal charges. So I've quoted quite extensively from these books, and maybe about a third of the talk is actually either quotes or extracts from the books. So, some history. The Ottoman Empire. It's worth being clear about the term Turks at the outset. The Turks didn't come from Turkey, they ended up in Turkey. They started in Central Asia on the borders of the present-day Siberia and Mongolia and spread east and west over the last few thousand years. Today, less than half of the Turkic-speaking people live in Turkey. Uzbekistan, Iran, Russia, Kazakhstan and Azerbaijan all have more than 10 million Turkic-speaking people. The Turks may even have crossed into modern-day Alaska as the Eskimo word for bear, i.e., is the same as the Turkish word. So you will learn something today. Uh, Many Turkic people were nomads, warriors and merchants. Statecraft was not historically their strong suit. This context is relevant because it talks to the lack of identity of homeland, of belonging, which becomes very relevant in the pursuit of nationalism. It's very hard to be a nationalist if you don't have a nation. The Ottoman state was created by Osman, a warrior leader of an Islamic tribe who lived in the 13th and 14th century. These tribes became successful by attacking and taking over sedentary states and empires that had gone soft. 
We can skip forward to the 21-year-old Sultan Mehmed II, who in 1453 conquered Constantinople, the Christian Greek capital and sole surviving remnant of the Byzantium Empire. When historians compare the late Byzantium ways with the early Ottoman ways, they note that the Ottomans kept the same institutions, the same taxes, the same laws as the Greeks. Osman's three main associates were Christians, the court spoke Greek, and there was no polygamy. Some historians have positioned the Ottoman Empire as the continuation of the Byzantium Empire by other means. By encouraging trade, by welcoming talent, be they Christians, Jews or Armenians, and by further conquest with their well-trained, well-armed standing army, the Ottoman Empire grew and prospered. By the 16th century, the Ottomans had conquered Egypt, Syria and the Islamic holy cities of Mecca and Medina. This gave the Ottoman Sultan the Caliphate, Essentially, the Sultan was a spiritual leader of all Sunni Muslims. Another word new to me in doing this research is Sinik Doshe. Sinik Doshe is just as we might say number 10, meaning the Prime Minister's office. So the French diplomats started calling the Ottoman government the Sublime Port, named after a gate into the city, and the name has stuck. Anyway, such was the power and the threat from the Ottoman Empire to Europe that the Holy Roman Empire agreed to pay tribute to Suleiman the Magnificent to prevent an Ottoman invasion of Europe. This tribute was called Tribute to the Sublime Gate. The fancy toys that were taking European courts by storm at these t- this time were clock automata. They were made out of gold and silver and had intricate clockwork mechanisms. Suleiman and most, but not all, the sultans loved them and they formed a key part of the European tribute to the Sublime Port. However, over time, the sultans became more pious and figurative art became unfashionable. And it wasn't just figurative art. In the 17th century, these sultans became more pious, more intolerant. Laws required Christians and Jews not to show off. Greeks were required to wear sky-blue skullcaps and black shoes. Armenians, dark-blue skullcaps and red shoes. Jews, yellow caps and blue slippers. Dress defined identity. By the end of the 18th century, European powers were much stronger and the Ottomans were losing territory. The Ottomans could no longer fund their army, and despite Islam forbidding taking on a debt, they were borrowing money. In the 19th century, the usually conservative sultans did try to reform, and a programme called Putting One's House in Order, or Tanzimat, was instituted. It was designed to make the Ottoman Empire more like a Western European nation. Continuing our dress example, Mahmud II in the 1820s decreed that his subjects were to wear not the turban, but the fez. It was Christian in origin, but had the advantage that its wearer could bow down in prayer and it would not come off. It also had a tassel on top, so the wearer could be pulled up to heaven. It could also be worn by non-Muslims as a badge of general belongingness, and this was the central point for Mahmoud. Mahmoud followed Britain's example and put in place free trade policies which encouraged inward investment, but at the expense of increasing national debt. His son, Abdul Mesut, was also a great reformer. He made Jews and Christians equal with Muslims, removing discrimination. A bank was established, education improved, and more business-friendly laws were enacted, and railways reached into Anatolia. He was particularly friendly with the British and the French, who supported him in the Crimean War against the Russians. The more entrepreneurial and education-focused Jews and Christians started to prosper while the Muslims stagnated. These changes increased conflict within the Ottoman Empire between the conservatives and the modernizers. One reason for this, argues Sukru, is that whilst introducing the new, the sultans didn't have the courage to get rid of the old. So, for example, Sharia law was allowed to continue alongside Western-style civil courts. 
The Ottomans took out more and more loans, but in 1870 there was a financial crash in Europe and the loans dried up. The Ottomans went bankrupt. Austerity hit and hit hard. Many regions started to agitate for a better life outside the empire. I share all this to show that the need for change was well recognised before Ataturk's time. The sultans were responding to this need, but this was causing divisions in the country. Some felt change was too fast or too slow, or favoured one group of people over another group. And as we know too well, austerity leads to much discontent, scapegoating and the rise of nationalism. In 1853, the term sick man of Europe was used to indicate the state of the Ottoman Empire. Interestingly, it's the sick man of Europe, not the sick man of Asia. By the start of the First World War, the Ottoman Empire still ruled the Levant and the eastern side of the Red Sea, including Mecca and Medina. So to summarise the situation about the time of our future Ataturk, Mustafa was born. The Ottoman Empire had been one of the world's greatest powers, militarily, economically and artistically. They were so feared in medieval Europe that Europeans paid tribute to stop them attacking. Due to conservatism and conservative nature of Islam, the Ottomans had failed to modernise. The empire was ruled by Turkic Muslims, but had very large Christian and Arab populations, maybe about 20%. So this was the world Mustafa was born to. Mustafa was born and brought up in Macedonia, the heart of Turkey in Europe, the country the Ottomans called Romeli, and the Byzantium Greeks called the Land of the Romans. The rugged, mountainous landscape was home to many different peoples, Muslim, Christian, Jews, Turks, Greeks, Slavs and Albanians. He was born in the cosmopolitan port of Salonika, also known as Thessalonica, in 1881. It was a time of unrest as the region was disintegrating into separate countries, Christian against Muslim, Slavs against Turks. Russia was pursuing dreams of expanding into the Mediterranean area and Bulgaria was also trying to expand. Mustafa's world was one of internal strife and external threats. He was born an Ottoman, an Ottoman Muslim of lower middle-class family. His mother was very fair, more Slav than Turk, but claimed descendants from the original nomadic Turkic tribes who created the Ottoman Empire. She was intelligent but uneducated, strongly religious and conservative. His father, on the other hand, was educated but very naive about the ways of the world. He had a minor role in the local customs department before trying to make his, his wealth by logging. But raids and protection rackets from displaced Greeks that the local police were too weak to prevent soon put him out of business. He then tried the salt trade and again failed. He turned to drink and died of tuberculosis when Mustafa was either seven or nine. Depends on which source you read. His father was anti-clerical. The conflict between religion and secular played out early in Mustafa's life. Initially, his mother won the argument over education and Mustafa went to an Islamic school. But one day during a calligraphy lesson, he got up from the required cross-legged position to stretch his legs. His teacher told him to sit down, but he refused. The teacher exclaimed, you dare to disobey me? And Mustafa replied, yes, I dare to disobey you. And the whole class then rose and supported Mustafa. After this, Mustafa's father found him a secular teacher outside of school. So this is at the age of about eight. When his father died, with no source of income, his mother, Mustafa and his sister moved to an uncle's farm in the country. Here Mustafa found little to challenge him and missed education, so persuaded his mother to send him to stay with his grandmother back in Thessalonica. He again fell out with the local teachers, and attracted by the smartness of the uniform and the quality of the education, he secretly, against his mother's wishes, applied for the local military school. With a lot of hard work and self-discipline, he passed the entrance exam and presented his mother with a fait accompli. 
She had to give in, and at the age of 12, Mustafa joined the officer training programme. The officer class was the elite of the country, not just in military matters, but in general education and philosophy. They were democratic institutions where success depended only on merit, not status, patronage or bribes, and Mustafa performed well and particularly well in mathematics. The transformational nature of a good education was highly appreciated by Mustafa throughout his life, and he championed education for both boys and girls, and this was in a culture that didn't value women's education. As was the custom in Ottoman society, there were no family names, just first names, and his teacher at the military school was also called Mustafa. So, so as to avoid confusion and following Turkish custom, the teacher gave him a second name and chose Kemal, which means perfection. He soon became a pupil teacher, running classes in the master's absence. Didactic by nature, it was a role he enjoyed. At 14, he left secondary school and joined as a boarder at the military training school of Monastir. For brevity, I shall call him Kemal rather than Mustafa Kemal. Monastir Military High School was one of only six across the whole of the empire from Damascus to Baghdad. Monastir, built on a plain high in the mountains, was close to the borders of Greece and Albania. He learnt how the Greeks, the Serbs and the Bulgarians were fighting to regain Turkish lands. At Monastir, he made friends with Omar Naji, a young poet who introduced him to something called literature, and another friend called Ali Feti, a fellow Macedonian who introduced him to politics. Feti was proficient in French, and in order to read French political philosophers, such as Rousseau and Voltaire, Kemal taught himself French beyond that which was covered by the school. I'm sure we all did that at 12. Their French teacher took them to a dance school to learn the polka and the waltz, but only with other boys, no girls were allowed. Kemal and his friends soon sought out the Café Chantants, the singing cafés, frequented by non-Muslims. Here girls would sing, accompanied by an orchestra, and then come and sit at their tables. As they grew older, they frequented the brothels, and such were Kamal's good looks that he often enjoyed the, their women's favours for nothing, a trend that was to continue through his life, more sought after than seeking, but readily complying. He graduated well, coming second in the class, and in 1899, at the age of 18, went to the War College in Constantinople. When Kamal arrived in Constantinople, the city had two distinct personalities. North of the Golden Horn was Pira, Christian, vibrant, lit up, modern, wealthy and stocked with the latest goods and fashions from Paris and Vienna. To the south, medieval, picturesque but dark and decaying, was Muslim Stamboul. Pira was the city of the foreigner and the wealth of the empire was in the foreigner's hands. The foreigner's strengths lay in something called the capitulations. These were extraterritorial privileges which exempted foreigners from taxes, enabled him to trade freely to practice his own religion and to live by his own laws. These had been granted by earlier sultans for their own advantage, at a time of Ottoman expansion when they needed foreign merchants to open up Western markets. But as the West in its turn expanded and the Ottomans declined, these powerful foreign states within the state made the Turk feel that the foreigner's word was law and that he was no longer master of his own affairs. Thus the modern city of Pira held the ancient city of Stamboul and its power. Here, Kamal became friends with a fellow cadet, Ali Ford, who came from Constantinople and introduced Kamal to his upper-class military family, with whom he got on well. In 1902, Kamal graduated as lieutenant and was posted to the Staff College. He began to read extensively, and Napoleon became one of his heroes and role models. At the age of 23, in 1905, he graduated as a captain from the Staff College. 
he came eighth out of a cohort of 459. He continued to read banned books, and amongst friends he would criticise the Ottoman sultans. One of his friends informed against them, and Kamal and Ali Ford were imprisoned for a few months, but they were eventually let off. However, in a pattern that was to be repeated many times in his military career, the military authorities wanted Kamal away from the capital, so he and Ali were posted to Damascus. Their role in Syria was to stop rebellions and to keep control, but he learnt that the army would extort money from the locals or loot their homes. Kamal would have none of this and instead built relationships with the locals and achieved peace through cooperation, not coercion. This earned him the respect from the locals, but understandably great animosity from the old military hands. He more and more came to believe that it was the Muslim religion that was holding the Turkish people back, and he began to meet like-minded people. In 1906, he formed a society called the Fatherland Society, which sought a revolution. Branches were set up in Jaffa, Jerusalem and Beirut, but these were Arab, not Turkish countries, and Mustafa realised a revolution wouldn't succeed starting from these places. The obvious centre was Macedonia, closer to the Western world, open to new ideas, and currently policed by the Russians and the Austrians, making it harder for the Sultan's secret police to operate. His local commanding officer, pleased to get rid of him for a while, agreed to his request for leave, and he returned to Thessalonica. Then he successfully applied for sick leave, which gained him four more months of freedom to stay in Macedonia. During this time, he established a Macedonian branch of his fatherland party. Back in Damascus, he behaved impeccably in order not to raise suspicion, and in 1907 was promoted and transferred to Macedonia, not in a field role as he wanted, but to the general staff. By this time, Macedonia was on the brink of succession, and terrorism was rife. Bismarck took advantage of the out-and-out Helenophile Gladstone to gain influence in Turkey by supplying troops, advice and intelligence to the Sultan. Gladstone is noted for using the phrase, the unspeakable Turk. Kamal found that during his time in Syria, his fatherland society had moved on and no longer needed or indeed welcomed him as a leader, and it was now part of a wider revolutionary group called the Committee of Union and Progress, CUP for short. In 1908, a military general and leading light in the CUP, Enver Pasha, led a, a successful revolt and became the effective leader of the Ottoman Empire. The leaders of the revolution were called the Young Turks, in October 1912, the first elections were held and the CUP lost, so Enver initiated another coup and regained control. Both Enver and Kemal believed in democracy in theory, it just didn't work for them in practice. Constitutionally, the Sultan remained the head of both the civic and religious parts of the Ottoman Empire, but in practice Enver was in charge and he remained in charge throughout the forthcoming Balkan Wars and the First World War. As Commander-in-Chief and War Minister, the Assyrian Genocide, the Greek Genocide and the Armenian Genocide all happened on his watch, and many feel he was responsible for the million-plus civilian deaths. Kemal had taken no part in the uprising, and there was some jealousy on his part towards Enver. He recognised Enver's bravery and military skills, but thought that his vanity, his piousness and his lack of political judgement would soon see him fail as a political leader. The Christian minorities, who had hoped for more recognition and autonomy as part of the revolution, felt they had gained nothing, and within months, Bulgaria had proclaimed independence, Austria had annexed the Turkish provinces of Bosnia and Herzegovina, and Crete had voted for union with Greece. Kemal saw that the country would fall into anarchy, and with his friends he would sit beneath the white tower of Thessalonica at an open-air cafe on the seafront, debating, arguing and planning what to do. He openly criticised the new revolutionary government, the CUP, 
and the CUP then arranged for him to be posted away, this time to Tripoli. In Tripoli, he found a very hostile atmosphere as the Arabs hardly recognised Turkish authority. On arrival, an Arab sheikh challenged him, who are you and what is your authority? Kemal showed him his letter of authority. The sheikh laughed and produced from his pocket three identical letters from Kemal's three predecessors. The sheikh had thrown all three into prison. Kemal changed his ground. Take the paper, he said. Tear it into pieces if you like. I am a man who has no need for paper, a man who comes to talk to you with no paper at all. The sheikh replied, then I can talk to you. And Kemal was able to get the three prisoners released and to get the sheikh to agree to Turkish oversight. Kemal was sharpening his political skills. Kemal found a new soulmate, a naval officer, Hussein Rauf, who shared his respect for Western European tradition and a sovereign parliament, and soon they had attracted an active group of patriotic young officers of similar mind. Kemal presented his views to the CUP leader, Enver, but to no effect. As the Tripoli delegate to the CUP conference, he publicly argued for both a strong army and a strong party, but he also argued that individuals should not serve two masters and should decide whether they were military leaders or politicians. Enver Pasha was both. His motion was not accepted. The CUP saw him increasingly as a threat and had at least one attempt to have him assassinated. In 1909, Kamal was attached to the Army Chief of Staff, assisting with troop training and inspection. Enver Pasha had sought the help of Germany in modernising their army, and Marshal von der Goltz was appointed to lead a military exercise. Kamal's peers saw themselves as subservient to Marshal Goltz, but Kamal set out to demonstrate his own military expertise by proposing a design for the exercise. The marshal accepted the plan, and with Kamal's help, it was a success. He had impressed a marshal, he had increased his own expertise and confidence as a senior commander. Goltz was the author of Nation in Arms, in which he argues war is inevitable and would be between nations, not just armies. So the military elite had a duty to lead not just the army, but also to help guide the ship of state. These views shaped the thinking of the Turkish military elite then, and probably still do today. Another influence on this elite was French polymath Gustave Le Bon, famous for his work on crowd psychology and his view of parliaments as gathering places for motley crowds to which the future of a nation should by no means be entrusted. (laughs) Can't think what he's referring to. He influenced not just the Turks, but many a 20th century dictator. Actually, I think he would be a good subject for for a talk, to be honest. He sounds quite interesting. However, Kamal's close relationship with Goltz again annoyed his commanding officers, who decided to move him out of a staff role and put him in charge of an infantry regiment, a role above his grade, where they hoped he would disgrace himself. He was again successful. He was then sent as part of a delegation to France to witness French military manoeuvres. The more the army and the CUP tried to get rid of him by moving him around, the more expertise he gained, the more contacts he made. He was successful in all his commands. By now, Kamal was a strong atheist and moderniser. For him, the Ottoman dress typified its outdatedness, and he knew from first-hand experience how the fez was ridiculed by all outside Turkey. He kept these views to himself and in public supported Islam. Nevertheless, many of the educated young men of the day were also beginning to turn away from Islam as a political force. The term Turk had been used as a derogatory term applied to Anatolian peasants, but gradually it came to reflect the proud, independent and successful people that existed before the Ottoman Empire and before Islam. In 1912, the Balkan people, encouraged by Russia, had started the First Balkan War, and Romilia, modern southern Macedonia, 
Kamal's birthplace and where his mother and sister still lived was lost. Kamal could never go home. Thousands of Muslim refugees had fled Ramilia and were sheltering from the winter's cold in courtyards of mosques in Constantinople. It was in one of these courtyards that he found his mother and sister and a family friend called Fikri. Unrest caused by the loss of territory enabled Enver and the CUP to institute a military dictatorship and they summarily executed by public hanging those that they thought a threat. They had become just as despotic as the sultans had been. Whilst the Balkan War showed Kamal the value of military might, he also learnt the power of historic argument to legitimise territorial claims. And concerned about European bias towards Greek culture, as his sense of Turkishness grew, he sought to legitimise the historic basis of Turkish culture and territory. In 1913, Kamal was posted far away as military attaché for the Balkans based in Sofia. The ambassador was Feti, an old friend, and it wasn't long before Feti and Kamal were well accepted in the social circles. One night, he was taken by a friend, Shakir, to a gala performance of Carmen at the opera. The elegance of the opera, the elegance of the audience, made a deep impression on Kamal. In the interval, he was presented to King Ferdinand, who asked him for his impressions. He could only reply, wonderful. This was Western civilization. There was nothing like it in Turkey. Constantinople had barely a theatre, far less an opera house. One of these days, his country must enjoy these amenities. Kamal and Shakir found themselves a house, and when it was ready, they gave a housewarming dinner for the Bulgarian Minister of Justice, serving caviar and the best brands of Turkish raki with champagne to follow. The excellence of the meal and the success of the evening came to the ears of General Kovacev, the Minister of War, who had fought against Kamal in the Balkan Wars. He made it known that he would like to be invited, and another dinner was given. This started a close friendship with the Kovacev family. Kamal now often went to their house where he and the general treated one another as comrades in arms, exchanging military reminiscences and engaging in long discussions on the art of war. He had not at first paid much attention to the general's daughter, a young girl named Dimitrina, but now he became aware of her and often asked her to dance when they met at parties. Their romance flourished, and eventually Kamal said to the general that he wished to marry his daughter. The general had sought the views of his fellow generals, one of whom said, I would sooner cut off my head than have my daughter marry a Turk. General Kovachev concurred, and Kamal and Dimitrina never met again. Such was the reputation Turks had in the Western world. In 1914... Enver was making progress on recon reconstruction, particularly with the army and the navy, and becoming respected not just as a successful military leader, but now as an efficient organiser. Even Kamal was impressed and wrote to Enver saying so and offering his services. However, the transformation was being done with German military expertise and aid, and many senior army positions were held by Germans. In the summer of 1914, the First World War started, and Enver had backed the wrong European power. Kamal advised that Turkey should not join the war on Germany's side. He argued if Germany won, Turkey would become a satellite of Germany. If Germany lost, Turkey would lose everything. It was this ability to see clearly the results of actions that distinguished Kamal from many of his peers. Enver sided with Germany, and the end of the Ottoman Empire was sealed. At the end of 1914, Limon von Sanders as overall commander and Lieutenant Colonel Kamal as divisional commander were sent to defend the Dardanelles. Kamal knew the Gallipoli Peninsula well from his time in the Balkan War. During the Gallipoli campaign, there were many, many times when the battles against the Allied Anzac forces looked lost. 
Kamal frequently took more authority than his rank permitted and led from the front. At one particular dire occasion, he said to his men, I don't order you to attack, I order you to die. <laughs> Nearly all his regiment did die, earning immortality in the annals of Turkish military history. In strategy as well, Kemal exceeded. He was able to predict the Anzac's attacks and deploy his limited resources to optimum effect. Between Kemal's leadership and the bravery of the aroused Turkish soldier, the Turks had managed to defeat the Allies. Seldom in history, wrote the British official historian, can the exertions of a single divisional commander have exercised on three separate occasions so, so profound an influence not only on the course of a battle, but perhaps on the fate of a campaign and even the destiny of a nation. For the first time in living memory, the Turkish people had won a victory against European powers. But there was to be no hero's welcome. Enver had previously said that he knew of only one man that could be his successor, and that was Kemal and he had no plans to hasten that succession. Kamal's name was kept out of the press, and an interview Kamal gave was suppressed. But through word of mouth, his deeds became known and mythologised. Kamal had been promoted to colonel during the campaign, and after the campaign he was promoted to general, or in Turkish, the exalted title of Pasha. By 1917, Kamal once again felt compelled to write to Enver about Turkey's flawed military strategy as he saw it and propose an alternative defence strategy protecting core Turkey and giving up on Mesopotamia and Africa. Enver did not accept his, this advice. In 1917, Turkey had lost Mecca, Baghdad, and on Christmas Day, Jerusalem. Kemal was additionally a pragmatist, and he sensed what was achievable, and he knew that to succeed, they had to create a, a sense of Turkishness, which was distinct from Arab, and this meant losing the Arab lands. In December 1917, the Kaiser invited the Sultan to Germany. The Sultan thought it unwise to go and sent the heir apparent in his place. Enver, seeing another chance to get rid of Kemal, sent him along with the party. This gave Kemal further opportunities to increase his knowledge and contacts and, importantly, build a strong relationship with the next Sultan, a tactical mistake by Enver, especially as the current Sultan died the following year. Enver, however, got his revenge by getting the new Sultan to give a personal order an order which couldn't be declined, to Kemal, to command the troops in Syria and to stop Syria falling to the Allies. This was an impossible task. There were hardly any troops left. He raised this with Enver, who just laughed. Arriving in Palestine, the situation was even worse than Kemal had imagined. The few troops that were left were exhausted, demoralised and hungry. The battle was lost. However, so was the war, and Enver and the CUP leadership fled to Germany and Russia, the Sultan appointed a friend of Kemal's, Izzet Pasha, to run the country, and peace negotiations started. Izzet gave Kemal command of all the troops in southern Turkey. Thus he now had control of most of the army and access to a friendly government. He hoped the changes he wanted could now come about. However, he quickly fell out with Izzet, who was willing to give the British whatever they asked for, whilst Kemal believed they should stick to the term of the armistice. Kemal was right to be concerned about the armistice agreement and the peace negotiations. The armistice was agreed on the basis that included self-determination not just for the Armenians and the Arabs, but also for the Turks. And this is what Lord Curzon, the British Foreign Minister, and President Wilson had agreed to. But Lloyd George, however, saw Turkey just as a blank space on the map to be shared out by the Allies. Lord George supported extreme punitive measures against the Central Powers, and about the Turks he had said, 
They are a human cancer, a creeping agony in the flesh of the lands which they misgoverned. And even worse for the Turks, the British government was already committed to four secret agreements. These agreements gave Constantinople and Eastern Thrace to the Russians in return for British control of Persia. The Arab world was to be split between France and Britain under the Sykes-Picot Agreement and Italy was to get a large portion of Turkey in Asia Minor. Greece had been offered large concessions on the coast of Asia Minor, land now promised to the Italians, which clearly upset the Greeks. Not knowing this, and in a misguided belief of leniency from Britain, the Sultan was willing to go along with whatever the British wanted. What Turkey would be left with under these plans is little more than half of Anatolia. It was this effective eradication of Turkey that so motivated Kemal. He wasn't prepared to go along with the Allies and his government's plans. Law and order was breaking down in Anatolia, but the British had no desire to put troops in and further inflame nationalists further and risk potential massacres of the Anatolian Christians. The British looked to a solution from the Sultan, who consulted his ministers. One, a friend of Kemal, suggested that Kemal should be sent in as an inspector in order to, one, put a stop to Muslim-Christian strife, two, to dissolve the nationalist councils, and three, to collect all arms and ammunition. Reluctantly, the Sultan agreed. So Kamal, now a highly experienced 38-year-old, had what he wanted, a power base away from government control. He set out about creating an alternative government. He put in place, step by step, plans to realise the Turkey that he'd always dreamed of. Kemal and his co-revolutionaries met at Amasya and agreed to make their base Angora, a central location in Anatolia and out of the reach from Constantinople. You may know of Angora as the name given to a breed of cat, a rabbit and a goat, and the goat is from where we get the uh, mohair from. That's got nothing to do with the story. (laughs) Meanwhile, the Greeks, encouraged by Lord George, had invaded Asia Minor to cement their claim to these lands. With this invasion, Kemal knew he could create a sense of Turkish nationalism. Eventually, of course, the Sultan and his ministers got wind of what was happening and ordered his return to Constantinople. He ignored these requests, which in itself confirmed his intentions to the government. At a place called Erzurum, which was the capital of eastern Turkey, he held a congress to agree the principles of the revolution and to announce his intent to the world. Always one for form, he then sent a letter to Enver resigning his position in the army. He was then elected president of the Congress, and the Congress consisted of merchants, lawyers, farmers, journalists, community leaders, and teachers from across Anatolia. They thought the Congress was about their region, but Kemal made sure its resolutions would apply to the whole of Turkey. He made it clear that this was not to be a revolt led from the top, like the young Turks were doing, but led by the people to meet the needs of the people. Right from the beginning, he tried to do everything within the law. Resolutions would be put and passed and acts recorded. Enver tried to get Kemal arrested, but he was out of reach and no one in Anatolia would comply. Kemal's people would now no longer comply with the terms of the armistice or the British control officers, who were, amongst other things, were supposed to confiscate weapons. Meanwhile, the Sultan's envoy at the Paris Peace Conference was being humiliated, it was clear Turkey was being offered next to nothing, as Kemal had predicted. And whenever some event took place, Kemal would write to both the domestic audience and, more importantly, to foreign powers promoting his nationalistic cause. 
So the Turkish cabinet turned to the British for military help to close down the nationalists. But the British were not willing to put in troops and break the terms of the armistice and risk a resumption of the war. The only thing that would appease the nationalists was the withdrawal of the Greek and the Italian troops. Meanwhile, Kemal decided the French were exposed in Cilicia, the part of Turkey that faces Cyprus, and he set about to remove them from an Armenian town called Marash. When Kemal's small guerrilla force arrived, the local Turkish eagerly supported his cause and took up arms. And over the three weeks, the French were forced out and around 8,000 Armenian civilians lost their lives. This caused consternation amongst the capitals of Europe. The French decided to recognise the nationalists and agree an armistice. The British, seeing things moving out of control, sent troops to take over Constantinople and the Turkish parliament was prorogued. And the British once again put their man back in charge as the Grand Vizier and a civil war against the nationalists was started. The British High Commission thought the whole operation a great success. Kemal saw things differently. By the British taking control of Constantinople, he knew the country would be even more behind him. And with the caliphate now controlled by the British, he wrote to Muslim leaders around the world to make sure they knew what was happening. And because the caliphate was at risk, Muslim Indians started a war fund and started sending money to the nationalists. Kemal then formed an alternative parliament in Angora and issued a communique convening the assembly with extraordinary powers, i.e. a constitutional assembly. The Sultan, as the supreme leader of the Muslim people, issued a fatwa saying it was everyone's duty to kill the rebels, and religious leaders were sent to Anatolia to preach this message to the faithful. Kemal, who we know was by now an atheist, decided the only way his parliament could be successful is if they could be seen as even more pious than the caliph. Not an easy trick. He announced that the opening of the assembly would take place on a Friday in a mosque and would start with prayers. And in order to emphasise the sacred nature of this day, for two days prior to this Friday, the Koran would be read in its entirety across the whole of Anatolia. Prayers would also be said for the deliverance of the Sultan Caliph from the occupying powers. Hymns would also be sung to honour the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad. Deputies, before taking their seat, had to swear an oath swearing to safeguard the independence of the Sultanate, the Caliphate, the country and its people. In all, 369 deputies were at the first revolutionary parliament. And this is an example of Kamal's insight into what had to be done and what had to be said in order to lead his people. He also knew that a democratic approach would get him support from the Western powers. However, he knew and the delegates knew that the country was not ready for democracy and they asked him to appoint the cabinet but he insisted that Parliament should appoint the Cabinet. Behind the scenes, of course, he made sure that it was his people that got elected. One of the Parliament's first acts was to produce a new constitution which put the unconditional sovereignty of the people first. Thus, without explicitly mentioning it, Kemal had got agreement for the eventual overthrow of the Sultan and the establishment of a republic. Most delegates were not aware that this is what they had agreed to. For the nationalists, there were, of course, disagreements and there were arguments and there were battles in the civil war to fight. Meanwhile, in 1920, the Treaty of Sevres was being hammered out. With true Parisian hospitality, the victors in the First World War were enjoying fine dining and palatial hospitality as they thrashed out a treaty that was meant to decide the fate of the Ottoman Empire. The only place large enough for all the delegates was a porcelain factory on the outskirts of Paris, and the agreement became known as the 1920 Treaty of Sevres. 
There were many opposing voices, but the outcome of the discussions was clear. The treaty amounted to war against Turkey to be conducted by proxy powers, Greece and Italy, on behalf of the major powers. According to Sukru, the Treaty of Sev was the only post-war peace treaty never to be implemented. Turkey would be reduced to about a third the size it is today, mainly occupying the centre of Anatolia. The Greeks would get the European part and the area around Izmir. The Italians would have control of Western Turkey, the French Syria and control over Southeast Turkey, whilst the Armenians would get Northeast Turkey. Constantinople and the Bosphorus would be controlled by an international body. The Greeks, to get their way, had to get rid of Kemal and the nationalists, and with Allied agreement, a strong, well-armed military force crossed into Turkey, crossing the agreed armistice line and thus violating the armistice agreement. Kemal compared it to the German invasion of Belgium. There is an old Turkish proverb, until you have crossed the bridge, you should call the bear your uncle. Kemal turned to the Ottomans' old enemy, the Russians, for help. In return for agreeing to Russian claims to Azerbaijan, the Russians would support Kemal in recovering Armenia and provide money and arms for him to fight Western imperialism in the form of the Greeks and the Italians. In the Treaty of Moscow, 16th of March 1921, the hereditary enemies agreed to cooperate. The border they agreed is still in place today, and for the first time these lands are called Turkey and for the first time the Turks had a national entity around which to rally. Only one ethnic group of any size and geographic area was included within the new nation, and they remain stateless to this day, the Kurds. The nationalist movement grew, and hence its organisation became more structured, and Kemal became more remote. He also became more remote physically as he moved into a large stone villa on a hillside at Chankia, some five miles from Angora. So as an example of how Kemal dramatically changed his language depending on what he wanted to achieve, Sukru has done a variety of textual analysis of his speeches. When he was courting Russia and needed their support, he used those socialist terms 151 times in 22 months. When he had different audiences to address, he used socialist language only eight times in 47 months. Kemal had last seen his mother and sister as refugees in Constantinople, where he sorted out somewhere for them to stay. With them was a friend, Fikri, six years younger than Kemal, and she decided to visit Kemal in Anatolia. She travelled alone on one of the rough tramp steamers that plied across the Black Sea and then by covered wagon to Chankaya to Kemal's new home near Angora. I quote Kinross, Kemal was a man wedded to his career, his country, and the society of other men, to whom women meant little save as a source of distraction, an outlet for his appetites, and as, as a stimulus to his masculine vanity. For all his refinements, he was in this respect still the rough soldier. Asked once what qualities he admired most in a woman, he replied, availability. <laughs> I, did, I, I did warn you. <laughs> she came to live with Kamal. He was fond of her and flattered by her love and enjoyed her feminine waves. She was intelligent and tactful, but still the oriental woman. And at no time did Kamal consider marrying her, and Kinross believes that Fikri knew this. Kamal's other way of unwinding was through drinking. He had drunk freely all his life, mainly in the evening to relax. He made no secret of it. 
A French journalist wrote that Turkey was governed by one drunkard, one deaf man, Ismet, and 300 deaf mutes, the deputies. At this, Kemal commented, this man is mistaken. Turkey is governed by one drunkard, full stop. <laughs> Meanwhile, the Greeks were advancing into Anatolia. In 1921, the Allies proposed another conference in London, this time including the Nationalists, to try and get the Treaty of Sevres accepted. The conference took place, and the erudite Times correspondent Aubrey Herbert commented, The conference need not necessarily break the crockery of the Treaty of Sevres. With a different glaze, it may become tolerable porcelain. No such metamorphosis occurred. Following the breakdown of the London Conference, the Allies declared their neutrality in the Greco-Turkish conflict. This did not deter King Constantine. He was determined to reign in Anatolia, as his Byzantine namesake had done. Early in June 1921, he left for Smyrna, the first Christian king to set foot on Anatolian soil since the Crusades. Quoting Kinross, Constantine's battle cry was, to Angora, and the British liaison officers were invited in anticipation to a victory dinner in the city of Kamal. The Athens press drew a parallel with the noble conquests of Alexander the Great. The Greek armies were to cut once again the Gordian lot, as he had done, and thus to found an empire in Asia. For Gordian was on the direct line of advance to Angora. They forgot, as Professor Toynbee observed, that Alexander had not, after all, outwitted the oracle, since he had cut, not untied the knot thus failing permanently to annex Anatolia. The subsequent battles lasted many days and killed many, but shortage of supplies, especially food, water and ammunition, took their toll on the Greek forces, and exhausted by 12th of September, the Greek forces were ordered to retreat. Whilst the battle may have been a draw, it was clear that Kemal had won the war. When the assembly met, they promoted him to Ghazi, a title which translates as field marshal, or more emotionally as conqueror, or more historically, as destroyer of Christians. The French soon afterwards recognised a peace treaty with Kamal, which gave him Cilicia, the southern Anatolia coast, and gave the French Syria. The French also handed over large stocks of arms and ammunitions, including ten aeroplanes. More importantly, the Allies' position was now fragmented, and the nationalists were now recognised by a major Western power. In the words of one British diplomat, the French had ratted. Lloyd George encouraged the, the, the Greeks to have yet another go at defeating Turkey, and once again the Greeks threw all they had at the campaign. Once again, Kemal took personal charge, and in 15 days, one day longer than he predicted at the outset, the Greeks were defeated and fled. There was much carnage on both sides. There was now no pretense. The Treaty of Sevres was dead, and Kemal had defeated the Allies. The final battle between the Nationalists and the Greeks had taken place at Smyrna, which had caught fire during the Greek retreat. Kemal had a temporary HQ, which was far from comfortable and far too close to the fires. One day, a young woman forced her way to see him. Kemal was intrigued by her forwardness. This was no peasant woman. She was well-educated, spoke seven languages, clearly intelligent and not unattractive. She was the daughter of a very successful Turkish businessman, well-connected in Europe. She explained that her family home was outside the city it would make a far better HQ for Kamal, and Kamal would be welcome to move there. Latif turned out to be the perfect house manager, excellent as a hostess for the frequent dinners, and she soon became Kamal's personal assistant. With her language skills, Latif also became a valuable translator and was soon a confidant. 
Kamal became more and more attracted to her physically as well, but she refused to be his mistress. She was an emancipated, modern woman, just the sort Kamal had always envisaged partnering. But with that independent thought, she was saying no. Kamal had major challenges ahead. He had peace to conclude, a sultanate and caliphate to dispose of, a country to westernise and a government to mould. For despite his core belief that everything must be done for the will of the people, these were not things the people yet willed. For the moment, he let the matter of marriage rest. There was also the matter of Fikri waiting for him in Angora. Kamal had become weary of her, and as her consumptive condition had worsened, took the opportunity to send her to a sanatorium in Munich to recover. Following the, the nationalist victory, Kamal chose his man Refet to be the first to enter Constantinople, where he received a hero's welcome. He met the Sultan and asked the Sultan to dismiss his Constantinople government and work with the nationalists, but the Sultan thought he could still cling to power. In Congress, Kamal used all his oratory skills to convince the wavering deputies that they should abolish the Sultanate but keep the office of Caliph, as was Kemal's way, one step at a time. Here is part of his speech. Gentlemen, sovereignty and sultanate are not given to anyone by anyone because of scholarship proves that they should be, or through discussion and debate. Sovereignty and sultanate are given by strength, by power and by force. It was by force that the sons of Osman seized the sovereignty and sultanate of the Turkish nation. They have maintained this usurpation for six centuries. Now the Turkish nation has rebelled and put a stop to these usurpers and has effectively taken sovereignty and sultanate into its own hands. This is an accomplished fact. The question is merely how to give expression to it. If those gathered here, the Assembly, and everyone else should look at this question in this a natural way, I think they would agree. Even if they do not, the truth will soon find expression, but some heads may need to roll. Using his well-honed techniques of persuasion and menace, for the first time in the history of Islam, there was a separation of the spiritual and the secular powers. On receipt of this news, the Allied High Commission and the remains of the Constantinople government accepted the new status quo, and the deposed Prime Minister handed over the seals of office to Refat. And as Kemal hoped, a week later, under the cover of darkness, the Sultan slipped away. The British Navy took him to Malta, and then he went on to San Remo. The Sultan's cousin, a devout Muslim who played no part in politics, was offered the role of Caliph as long as he did what the government instructed him to. He accepted his role and was confirmed by the deputies. Kemal had a huge challenge ahead of him, and not just in Turkey, but with preconceptions from the rest of the world. He remembered the ridicule the Fez had attracted. He remembered his rejection from his, his first marriage proposal because he was a Turk. He probably never saw a telegram that the British Embassy received from an American impresario on hearing the news of the Sultan's departure. The telegram said, Hippodrome, New York, could use wives of ex-Sultan. Kindly put me in touch with party that could procure them. Apparently, when the message was shown to King George V, he was greatly amused. The Treaty of Lucerne was ratified by Turkey on the 23rd of August 1923, and Turkey declared itself a republic on the 23rd of October, with Mustafa Kemal as first president. The Treaty of Lucerne was the final treaty that agreed the borders of modern-day Turkey and provided international recognition for the Republic of Turkey as the successor political entity to the Ottoman Empire. It obliged Turkey to protect the rights of some, but not all, Christian and Jewish sects within Turkey, and for Turkey to join the League of Nations. 
It brought an end to the capitulations which had given foreigners a state within the state of the Ottoman Empire. Today, there are a number of websites that promulgate a conspiracy theory that the treaty has a secret 100-year validity clause, and Erdogan is on record as saying the treaty needs revision. Views in Turkey are divided between those that feel the Treaty of Lucerne was a triumph for Turkey, rescuing it from almost total obliteration, to those that feel more of the Ottoman Empire should have been kept. Expect some nationalistic fervour on the 100th anniversary in 2023. Because Erdogan certainly has a sense of history. On the 90th anniversary of the historic treaty between Russia and Turkey, he has been presented by the then President of Russia, Dmitry Medvedev, a photograph of the 1921 treaty being signed. The 100th anniversary is next year. Kemal the Field Marshal had become a politician and was given a new name, Ataturk, Father of Turkey. In swift order, he dissolved Parliament, called fresh elections to give him a Parliament that would be more malleable to his will, and candidates were vetted before being allowed to stand. It was a one-party state. He, for the first time of any Turkish leader, went round the country holding public meetings to make sure the people knew and agreed to his vision, albeit a vaguely painted vision. He held 34 such meetings, and at some he would speak for three or four hours. He emphasised that the people now had a say in the running of their country, whilst at the same time not exposing his plans to establish a republic, and although he planned to abolish the caliphate, he made sure to pose as a champion of Islam. On his tours, he abolished the formal functions and exchanging of of lavish gifts that had characterised the Ottoman official meetings. There was, however, a fundamental conflict with his loyal friends that helped him with the revolution. They wanted democracy. They wanted the opportunity for opposition parties to challenge the government. And Ataturk was sympathetic to this. He believed in a Western-style democracy, and twice he facilitated the setting up of opposition parties. But each time when these parties started to criticise his plans, he closed them down. He couldn't abide criticism. He moved the capital from Constantinople to Angora, which was renamed Ankara, but left the caliphate in Constantinople, demonstrating a clear separation of church and state. Whilst popular with the people, those that had to live in Angora, a remote, primitive backwater with few amenities, no running water, no electricity, no hotels, no restaurants, were less happy. And Constantinople was renamed Istanbul. Despite a strong and reasonably loyal parliament to support him, when Ataturk started sounding out the MPs on a move to becoming a republic, the reaction was hostile. They were too conservative and Ataturk was moving too fast. They also feared it was a short step from republic to a dictatorship. Ataturk knew he would lose a debate, so he engineered a crisis. Since the parliament was responsible for electing ministers, he instructed the ministers they elected to not accept their positions thus leaving the country without a government. In this crisis, he came to Parliament and, using his powers of oratory, convinced them that since it was clear the current form of government was not working, he proposed a new form, one that he claimed was the same form of government that the Prophet Muhammad had put in place in Mecca. Parliament should accept his constitutional reforms. He won the day and duly became the first president of Turkey. He was now head of the cabinet, head of parliament and head of state. When one of his close friends compared him to the Holy Trinity of Father, Son and Holy Ghost, Ataturk is reported to have said, it is true, but don't tell anyone. (laughs) The way Ataturk forced through these changes alienated many of his old friends. He now had more power than many of the sultans before him 
and some of these old loyal friends became outspoken opponents of Ataturk. Ataturk had often had illnesses during his life, exacerbated by his punishing work schedule and his heavy drinking and smoking, but shortly after this he had a mild heart attack, enough to put him unconscious for some minutes. It didn't cause Ataturk to change his ways, but it did have a major impact on his life, which we will come back to later. A few months later, he started to abolish the caliphate. First, he mandated that mosque services must be in Turkish, not Arabic, the language of the Quran, a move akin to abolishing Latin in church. Then he sought to ban the religious-based education system and demanded a secular system. There was a near riot in Parliament, which had to be adjourned, but at the end of the day, Ataturk got his way. The role of the caliph was abolished, as was the Ministry of Religious Affairs and Religious Schools. A month later, Sharia courts administering religious law were abolished and a civil code based on Swiss law was instituted. The caliph left the country for Switzerland. Two Arab leaders, Sharif Hussein of Mecca and King Fawad of Egypt, vied for the recognition of the greatest spiritual leader in the Sunni Muslim world. But there is no caliph today, a vacuum ISIS are trying to fill. Today, Turkey has a secular constitution with no official state religion in keeping with Ataturk's vision. Faith parties are banned and faith-based schools are banned. However, the state controls and publicly promotes Sunni Islam through its presidency of religious affairs, which operates over 77,000 mosques and pays the salary of the imams and approves all sermons. It has a budget of over $2.5 billion and employs over 100,000 people. Erdogan's Justice and Development Party is strongly pro-Islam. Like many late Ottoman literati, Ataturk believed religion is the science of the masses, whereas science is the religion of the elite. Encouraged by talk of an independent Kurdistan at the peace conference, the Kurds in southeast Turkey revolted, seeking an independent state. Militarily, they were weak, but the mountainous terrain meant that the cabinet knew it would take the army some time to put down the rebellion, and they feared the rebellion would, would spread. They thus passed legislation, the law of maintenance of public order and something called the independence tribunals. And this gave the government draconian powers and the right to enact summary executions without trial and to close down newspapers and impose censorship. Initially focused on putting down the Kurdish revolt, a failed assassination attempt on Ataturk in 1926 led to more widespread and indiscriminate use. And as often happens with such powers, they were abused and used to silence any dissenting voices. Public hangings became a common sight, and this tyrannical law was in place for four years. Ataturk used this opportunity to get rid of his opponents. One visible sign of Turkey's past, and one as we have seen Ataturk detested, was the fez. In Turkish society, the word for hat, shapka, was seen as an ugly word, the word of an infidel, and newspapers would not use it. During 1925, Ataturk tried out a variety of Western hats. The Panama seems to have been a favourite. But wherever he went, he was greeted with silence, so Ataturk made many speeches about hats. For example, A civilised international dress is worthy and appropriate of our nation, and we will wear it. Boots or shoes on our feet, trousers on our legs, shirt and tie, jacket and waistcoat. And of course, to complete these, a cover with a brim on our heads. I want to make this clear. This head covering is called hat. <laughs> Later in 1925, the hat law was passed, banning the wearing of the fez and mandating only Western-style hats for those that wanted to wear a hat. The law caused widespread riots in the east of the country, 
and the law for maintenance of public order was used to suppress the riots and punish the rioters. Ataturk had been dis- discussing with academics for some time, making a change from Arabic script to the Latin script, and had set up an alphabet commission. There was huge opposition, even from his closest allies. His hand was strengthened when, in 1926, the Latin alphabet was adopted for all Turkish republics in the Soviet Union, and Ataturk was determined to go ahead. Politicians and administrators recommended a five-year transition period where both alphabets would be used. In November 1928, the new script, which was called the Turkish script rather than the Latin script, became law, and use of Arabic script was banned from the end of the year, a two-month transition period. So for completeness, I've just noted a number of few other things you may be interested in. It was Ataturk that turned the Hagia Sophia, which had been a mosque for 500 years, into a museum. He abolished Friday as the start of the weekend and made the weekend Saturday and Sunday. He introduced surnames for the first time. He chose Ataturk as his surname and Kamal as his first name. Regarding the rise of Hitler, he said Hitler's dictatorship had enslaved a free people. His dictatorship had freed an enslaved people. He was good with words. Regarding Stalin, he saw him as the most important international statesman of the 20th century and was very wary of close ties with Russia. He worked hard to establish Turkey as a friend of civilised nations, including those that once foes. He settled differences with Persia, Iraq, the Balkans and with Italy and Greece. He saw America had abandoned President Wilson's vision for Europe and abandoned Europe and predicted another major war in the 1940s. The US ambassador to Turkey compared him to Martin Luther for his attempts to modernize a religion. He developed the Turkish history thesis, which posits that the cradle of mankind is Central Asia, and China, India, and Mediterranean countries owe their civilization to Turkish migrations. These silk roads are older than I thought. He started to reform the Turkish language, purging it of all foreign, mainly Persian and Arabic words. Implementation continues to this day. It has been, according to an English professor of the Turkish language, a catastrophic success, with modern Turkish speakers now no longer able to read pre-1930s documents. Okay, before we talk about his marriage, first a few words about the status of women in 1920s Turkey. When Ataturk became president, women's position in society was much as it was at the time of the Ottoman Empire started and was subject to Sharia law, which amounted to segregation from what was seen as a predatory male world. In Constantinople, no woman might be seen walking in the street or driving in a carriage with a man, even if it was her husband. If they went out walking together, she had to walk behind him. There was no mixed Muslim society. Trams and boats had segregated areas for women. Ataturk made many speeches condemning this behaviour and sought to flout its conventions. He would be seen in public dancing with women and encouraged other men and women to dance together and encouraged institutions to open their doors to women. We met Latif in Izmir, where the defeated Greeks were looting, burning and worse, in their retreat, and she offered her house as a safe and comfortable HQ for Kamal. Her Turkish parents were prosperous, maybe the most prosperous family in the whole of Izmir. Her parents were well ahead of their time in giving their daughters a first-class education, so much so that her father thought it would take a couple of generations before Turkish husbands would be available as well as educated as her daughters. Latif went to Tudor Hall School in Chislehurst in the London Borough of Bromley before going on to read law at the Sorbonne. She was passionate and knowledgeable about poetry and literature, especially German literature, 
and knew a few books by heart. She was fluent in Arabic, Farsi, Latin, English, French, German, Italian and Greek. She was an ardent supporter of women's rights and followed the women's rights movement in the Western world. She once said to her mother, women may have a secondary place in the family, but they still have the capacity to rule their husbands by the power of their personality. I think we can tell this marriage is not going to end well. <laughs> While staying at Latif's house in Izmir, Kamal had a heart scare. The doctors diagnosed as a coronary spasm and prescribed a regime of cutting out alcohol and cigarettes. Latif, who was by now smitten with Kamal, removed all alcoholic drinks from sight and sought to limit his intake of both alcohol and cigarettes. At this stage of the relationship, she proceeded softly with these restrictions and Kamal was intrigued and touched by her concern. After a few days, Kamal proposed to Latif. This is how Ipek Chalishlar describes the proposal in her book, Madame Ataturk. Ipek says that Latif's niece told her this story. One morning, Kamal made a request to Latif as he was leaving, saying, My gentle Latif, would you personally tidy my room up today, please? Of course, she replied. She wondered what was going on when she entered his room. It was quite tidy and the bed had been made. The only thing out of place was the portrait of Kamal that normally hung on the wall. It was lying on the bed and the rose that she had freshly picked that morning had been placed over the picture. On the back of the portrait, Kamal had written a proposal of marriage. Since she wanted to hear him say it out loud, she decided she too would play a little game. She hung the picture back up and never said a thing about it all day. <laughs> Come evening, knowing he would question her, Latif pinned the rose to her collar on the inside so it didn't show and went down to supper. Still seeing no reaction from Latif, Kamal asked, Dear Latif, you did tidy my room up today, didn't you? Yes, I did, she replied. When he asked... Did you notice anything out of the ordinary? She said impishly, I saw nothing out of the ordinary except for the portrait on your bed and I hung it on the wall. Kamal tried one last time and asked, But there was a rose on the picture. What have you done with it? And he noticed the playful glint in Latif's eyes. So she showed him the rose she had worn on her collar, saying, I took it and placed it above my heart. Kamal had to concede, All right, Latif, you win, but don't expect me to kneel. I have never knelt before anyone. When we shall get round to marrying, I have no idea. There is much to do for the country. Latif was elated. Kissing his hand, she said, I'll wait, even if I have to wait a hundred years. Kamal interjected, Oh, child, have a heart. What could I possibly do at that age? <laughs> Kamal had sounded out his friends about the marriage, and they were enthusiastic. Latif's parents, less so. Kamal was too busy with the revolution to have any sort of engagement celebration or indeed to see much of Latif for a while. Latif's parents decided to have a party to celebrate the liberation of Izmir and Kamal chose to gatecrash this and turn it into a wedding celebration. On the day of the party, as Latif was helping with the preparations, Kamal informed her they were to be married that day. One of the visitors was the registrar who married them there and then. While somewhat rushed, the form of the wedding was western rather than eastern an example Latif and Kamal was keen to set. For example, the wedding was on a Monday, not the traditional Thursday. The wife was at the wedding ceremony, not represented by an agent, as was the custom, and she was also asked if she consented. When they married, Latif was 24 and he was 41. Their honeymoon was spent touring districts of southern Anatolia that had been ravaged by war, and Latif was by his side, unveiled the whole time. The message was clear, women and men should be treated as equals. They moved back to Angora, modern-day Ankara, 
and Latif furnished the house and ensured it was kept immaculate and again was the perfect hostess for the frequent dinners. Ataturk had never looked after his health and when he had a second heart attack in 1923, he would have ignored the doctor's advice about cutting out drinking and smoking. But Latif cared too much for him to let him continue. She made sure he rested and limited visits from friends. At first he was amused by being nannied. However, over time he resented being treated like a child. She cut his dinner parties short and sent guests home. So he stopped asking her to host the dinner parties, which of course ended up with even more drinking and smoking, which made Latif doubly upset. Upset for being excluded and upset that he was ruining his health. These then were the subjects of their first rows. At this point, Fikri, the Turkish lady who Ataturk was with before Latif, and the lady he sent off to the sanatorium in Munich, reappears. Fikri found out about Ataturk's marriage to Latif by reading about it in a newspaper. She arrives at Ataturk's house, which she still thought of as her house. She arrives unannounced and demands to be let in. Ataturk and Latif are there. The atmosphere is polite but icy cold, with both women waiting for the other one to leave. Eventually, Fikri leaves. Some days later, early one morning, she returns asking to see Ataturk and making it clear she considers herself the lady of the house. An aide notices she has a gun in her bag and says that she can't see Ataturk and must leave. She leaves in the horse-drawn cab that brought her and after a short distance, shoots herself through the lung. And a few days later, in hospital, she dies of pneumonia. There are many different versions and interpretations of this story and it seems likely she planned to kill Ataturk and then commit suicide since she had a second gun hidden on her person. Other versions say she was murdered. Ataturk seems to be genuinely distraught about Fikri's death and a few days later, whilst at home listening to music and having a good-humoured conversation with Latif, he presumably accidentally calls her Fikri. Latif lost her temper and said, it is you who have killed Fikri and now it's my turn, is it? Latif then contacted her parents and moved into a separate room, not seeing Ataturk till her parents arrived. When they did arrive in front of them, she said to Ataturk she wanted a divorce. Her parents managed to achieve a reconciliation. They continued their life together, but the disagreements became more frequent. It was either his drinking, friendliness with other women, or Latif not being accorded the status she felt she deserved that caused the arguments. It is clear they both still loved each other, but as Latif said in a letter to her mother, it is like being in the same house with a tiger. But I'm not trying to rein the tiger in, just avoid its claws. I suspect Ataturk felt the same. The final row came in July 1925. Nobody knows for sure what it was about. Ataturk writes to Latif saying that they both need time apart and she should go away. We don't know if Ataturk had divorce in mind at this point, but two and a half weeks later... Latif receives a legal document saying they are divorced and an announcement was sent to the newspapers. Ataturk apparently also sent a more personal letter to Latif saying how much he loved her, but they couldn't live together. The divorce paperwork says the divorce was by mutual consent, but the law at that time allowed a man to divorce his wife by proclamation. Curiously, both Latif and Ataturk have been working on getting the new civil code, based on the Swiss legal system, written and through Parliament. It was passed a few months later and removed a man's right to divorce his wife by decree. Was Ataturk's timing of the divorce influenced by this change in the law? <coughs> no one knows. Both Latif and Ataturk agreed not to discuss the reasons for the divorce with anyone, and they did not, and Ataturk's papers and memoirs on the subject have not been made public. Latif lived a solitary life, reading and writing, 
and with a few close friends and relatives. She had offers of speaking engagements, which she could have taken up, but she didn't want to be in the public eye. Women did get the vote and could stand for Parliament in the 1930 election, two years after Britain. Ataturk died on the 10th of November 1938 of cirrhosis of the liver after eight months of severe illness. Ataturk usurped power in 1922 and died in 1938. In 16 years, he forcibly took Turkey from a country that culturally Osman, the founder of the Ottoman Empire in the 14th century, would have recognised to one that was respected and admired by world leaders everywhere. The Turkish constitution seeks to present him as faultless. Ataturk never saw himself as perfect, and I don't think we need to either to appreciate his greatness. Thank you. The views expressed in this talk are representative of the views held at the time of the material being discussed. They do not necessarily represent the views of the speaker, the Farnham U3A History Group, or the team at the Mr T Podcast Studio. This podcast has been produced by the Mr T Podcast Studio in association with the Farnham U3A World History Group. Thank you very much for listening.